Bucks start their seven-game homestand on the right foot with a win over Montreal. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also covers the team for the Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer Canucks win 5-3 last night over Montreal. Lots to get into from a total team perspective. But I think we got to start with the guy who stole the show once again in JT Miller. Four-point night, scores a massive goal in the third period to put the team up. We're running out of superlatives to uh, to use on JT Miller's season right now, and it's particularly the last couple of months where he has been on an absolute heater. His name's been in the news and conversation a lot for trade talks, but just purely focusing on what he is doing on the ice right now for the Canucks, it really is remarkable. What's funny is I didn't think he had a great game. Like, he didn't have a great game despite the points dripping off of him last night. You know, you think about the – he gets a point on the Hamannick goal – that was a Brock Besser straw that stirs the drink shift, right? He gets a point on Brock Besser's power play goal. That was just a, a goal line jam play, like a heads up to Foley in play by Besser. And then in the third period, Miller called game. I mean, that was yep. the play where, you know, alpha dog stuff. Miller just got tired of this stalemate and, and you know, picked off a pass. He thought he might have been, he might have hooked Jeff Petrie on the play. Uh, takes it the other way, rifles at top corner, and that's it. That's all she wrote. That's the It doesn't hold up as the game winner, but that was the de facto game winner. That was the moment that broke the Canadians' back. Um, even when he's not on, he has a moment like that, and that's the type of player he is. That's the type of season he's having. He's extraordinary. He, you know, I, I can't even think of an NHL comp for him in terms of his versatility, in terms of the face-off winning percentage, in terms of the way he wins draws with that, you know, sort of baseball swing power move in terms of, you know, being sort of a natural winger who can play center and QB a power play. I mean, there's not a lot. Miko Rantanen is, is one of the guys, but I mean, there's not a lot of wingers in this league who quarterback a power play. Marner, uh, Jonathan Huberto, but it's a short list. JT Miller's on it. And then you throw in the size, the ability to win battles on the wall, the swashbuckling, you know, sort of sense about him. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why the Miller topic has become an emotional one for Canucks fans, for this market, and and a reason why there's 31 teams in the NHL that would love to have a guy like him on their roster. Yeah, it's the combination of all those things and the swagger and then still having the ability to make those game-breaking plays, right? That's what the goal when he steals it from Petrie really was. It was a game-breaking moment where kind of out of nothing, he's the type of player that can convert that opportunity and put his team in the lead ultimately for good, although Montreal would eventually get a third goal back so it doesn't go down as the game-winning goal. And with that four-point outburst last night, you know, JT Miller moves back into top 10 in scoring in the NHL. He is on pace to go over 90 points, which is something the Vancouver Canucks have not seen uh, in a long time. He's on pace to potentially have, you know, one of the top offensive seasons in Vancouver Canucks history. So, it's, it puts uh, it puts the conversation around JT Miller in such a fascinating spot because all of those things can be true, and yet the logic for exploring a JT Miller trade remains very strong, in my opinion. And in fact, you could argue that 
because he is producing so highly and because he is demonstrating his value night after night, the potential return becomes even more interesting from a Canucks perspective. So I'll put it out to the listener, 650-650 in the Dunbar Lumber text line. Has JT Miller's recent performance changed what you think about the idea of trading JT Miller, whether it's at this deadline or whether it's in uh, farther down the road, potentially in the summer and at the draft? And for me, Drance, I think my take still comes down to you can move JT Miller. You can do it at this deadline even if the return is right. And that return has to be significant. That much is clear. When you have a player who is as valuable, as in demand, does so many things for your team as JT Miller does, you are not trading him solely for cap flexibility, right? You need to be able to get assets in return. I think increasingly because of that, I'm starting to come around to the idea that you might be able to get the most or get the appropriate return back at the draft rather than in season. That's not 100% guaranteed. You never know what can happen in you know the 11 days here leading up to the NHL trade deadline, but it does seem like to move a player of this magnitude and get the appropriate return back, it might be easier to do it in the offseason when teams have a little bit more flexibility. Yeah, I mean, some general rules apply here, right? As a player's term winds down, their value goes up. Look no further than Tanner Pearson at the deadline last year versus Tanner Pearson today. Now, granted, he has no move clause or no trade clause, so it's sort of a moot point. But even if he didn't, right, Tanner Pearson's value would be 25% of what it would have been if they'd made the move at the deadline last year because of the term involved. Teams are reluctant to add term. Teams love adding good players on expiring deals. Um, there's a, The other rule that applies here is simple, supply and demand. In season, there's only so many teams that can accommodate JT Miller's contract without sending money out. The Canucks, the, the logic of any deal the Canucks would make involving any of their big-ticket guys rests squarely on the ability to say goodbye to a cap commitment for next season. Um, so, you know, it's really tough to find or, or to have maximum amount of bidders in the pool at the trade deadline. And that sort of limits you, right? The reason I think the Bowen Byram report from Rick and I, I think, got so much traction and was discussed by, you know, Elliot Friedman and, and on and on, right, is that that's the type of deal where it's a problem-solving deal for the other team because it because the timeline of his deal squares up exactly with Nathan McKinnon, right? Because the Avs are an all-in team, a win-now team. I think there's a sort of sense that that's the type of deal you'd kind of be limited to. You'd be looking for, people would be looking at him as like the premium version of Blake Coleman. Right. Right? And so, you know, that not that that limits your market, but there's only so many teams that are going to pay that type of deadline premium for that piece. You know, I think the Canucks clearly were willing to listen to teams that might have been willing to, to pay that deadline piece premium. But I do think if your goal is to get a bidding war, uh, you know, the best time to do that is at the draft. And and where I do think you run into some issues, right, is I do think you do need clarity. Not, like, there is value to carving out cap certainty in terms of shedding commitments before the deadline, right? That logic, though, might be undermined by how well the team is playing, by the relationship management aspect of that, um, you know, and, and by where this club decides ultimately that they want to go. But there is there is value to doing that before the deadline. And there's certainly value to doing that in the event that a team comes calling with the godfather offer, right? The offer you can't refuse. At the draft, there is value in that there is more bidders. There is yeah. more flexibility to move into more teams, and that could impact 
valuation overall. The risk you run into is the Mark Stone risk, right? That's the risk you run into. If you look through the list of star level players that have been dealt over the last six, seven years, right? One return stands out because Mark Stone was a top 40 NHL point producer, uh, was a absolute dynamite. One of the best defensive forwards in the league. Period. And he was in the expiring, he was an expiring contract. He, he had an arbitration hearing. Um, they ended up settling on a one-year deal. It was $7.35 million. The Ottawa Senators waited and waited. And, you know, in, as opposed to even guys like uh, J.P. Pajot, his, his teammate at the time, going for a first, a second, and a third, Stone goes for Brandstrom, who admittedly at the time was a highly valued prospect. Um, you know, another B prospect, uh, Oscar, uh, I think some some guy named Lindbergh, I don't remember his first name, and a second rounder. And that's where you run into the risk. Like, if you don't do it at this deadline, fine, uh, I think. I think there's there's an understandable case to be made for seeing what you can do this season with how the team's played under Boudreaux and making your decision at the draft once you've got more clarity on exactly what it might look like for Miller on an extension. Uh, where I think you run into a risk is if that occurs and you don't get him extended this summer and you go into next season and you're not good, right? Then I do think at the time that you, you try and deal him at the deadline next year, you've waited too long. So that's sort of the that's sort of the arc, the 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 gravity's rainbow parabola that that I see of the of the Miller story, right? Those are the pressure points. And you know, I'm not going to be carving this management group if they don't sell at this point too aggressively the you know I, I think we have to adjust a little bit now that the Canucks are and look they look like they're three points out but the teams ahead of them have two games in hand right so you don't don't look at the standings but the fact is is that the Canucks are at a 15 16 percent shot at making the playoffs scoring the Dalton decisions model that's a lot more realistic than it has been at various times this season right um, I've left this team for dead so many times over the course of this year and if they do, in fact, pull off a miracle and come back, they will, in the history of Dom's model, have pulled the most improbable playoff run out ever. No team has ever made the playoffs after being at 1% for Dom's model, ever. It's never happened uh, in, the, in the five years that it's existed. The Canucks would be the first. So as they're sort of racing toward that miracle and they've got the 16% odds, I still think, it, you know, I can see the case anyway for standing mostly pat. But... You do need to make a decision. You do need to figure out what you do need to figure out a way out of Halak at the very least. Right, and you do need to either have Mott sign a team-friendly extension, or he needs to be monetized. There, there are only two acceptable courses of action there. I would like to see the team do more than that. I believe, I believe that management, as they look to put their stamp on this roster, would love to move out additional commitments beyond that. That might not be possible at this deadline. In fact, it's probably only possible if you significantly weaken your team. There may not end up being an appetite for that. So, you know, we're going to see, I think, uh, we might we might end up seeing a relatively quiet deadline. But for me, if this team is unchanged going into game, uh, whatever it is, 63 on the other side of the deadline, if they're completely unchanged, to me that's concerning. To me that feels like, you know, like nothing, like we might as well not have had a change except right. behind the bench uh, in terms of what this organization is, has done since early December. The uh, the other, okay, so the other two parts, I think, of potentially waiting 
to the draft, to the summer, to explore a JT Miller trade. One, there's always the possibility that a team with legitimate Stanley Cup aspirations going into this year's playoffs flames out much earlier than they would than they were hoping to go, sure. and then they f- start to feel pressure to make a deal. Right, that may, might increase their interest in a JT Miller trade. The other kind of interesting thing I think is if that you know 15 to 20, whatever percentage you want to put on it, if that percentage of the Canucks making this miracle playoff run comes to fruition. I mean, that only increases this kind of halo surrounding JT Miller right now, right? Because he is going to be a key part. He already has been a key part in boosting their odds to that point. If they actually are able to pay it off and make that miracle run, he's going to be a huge part of it. And that is going to also increase his value going into the summer, kind of having that mark on his resume. So there's a couple of other additional factors there that might make exploring the deal in the summer make more sense. The other one that I think is interesting is from think about thinking about this from JT Miller's perspective. So he has the one year left on his deal, right? And we often kind of think of this in strictly from the team's perspective, right? Where it's should the Canucks trade him or should they re-sign him? It's like, well, it's not actually just up to the Canucks, right? JT Miller is, has a choice of where he wants to sign an extension. And he is a human being with um He has agency. A, yeah, with yeah. agency. Thank you. And Usually, and this is almost always the case, it makes the most sense for a player to get to unrestricted free agency, right? Get to the open market, see who's willing to bid the highest, and take that deal. With JT Miller having this kind of year, right, an undisputed career year where he could be in the top 10 in NHL scoring, I wonder if he's willing to say, you know what, if somebody meets my asking price... I'll strike while the iron is hot, and I'll sign an extension this summer if you're willing to back up the brink truck and pay me like a top-10 scorer in the NHL. And I think... If you're the Canucks, the question then becomes, okay, either are we willing to pay him like this coming off this career year, and if not, we probably have to trade him to a team that is interested in doing that because they are going to want you know, to lock in long-term to JT Miller at that point. So I think the, the decision from JT Miller's perspective is interesting as well. If he wants to get paid this summer, that kind of puts a little bit of pressure on the Canucks to make that decision rather than letting it extend uh, to next year's deadline, for example. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that pressure will exist anyway, right? Because if this team does have a conservative deadline, you're still looking at a summer in which you don't have many much wiggle room to improve, right? I mean, this team's going to have, most likely, um, you know, something like one million and a half. In, in penalties, bonus penalties, if they if, if they were to make no moves between now and the end of the year, uh, some would be Halak's, some would be Pod Colson's. And by the time you get to sort of the, the summer, you're looking at $13.5 million. And, yeah, I mean, maybe you can find some cash-in, cash-out deals with some of the middling guys around the roster. Maybe you can, you know, reset a little bit your bottom two pairs and your middle six, you know, if you really want to. But, you know, if you re-sign Mott, for example, then you're looking at something like $11 million, $10 million in, in cap space to upgrade this roster. And seven and a half of that is Brock Besser's, you know? And then, I mean, say you, say you do Spencer Martin as your backup, um, then all of a sudden you're at, you know, at, at least in terms of what you can budget for, because you have to budget the 7-5 for, for Besser, even though he probably doesn't come in on that if you do keep him and qualify him. He might, though, right? He might. Yep. You, you qualify him, he can just say, okay, Seven five, beautiful. Balls in his court. Then, Let's right? go. Mm-hmm. So you know you don't control it, which is why you'd have to budget it accordingly. Um, you know, then you're looking at one one and a half million to add around the edges. I mean, and then and then you're returning this roster. And and look, I know that this roster is on an incredible run. Like I I see it. Um, 
I credit them for it. But are they doing this in a way that you'd feel confident that they're going to be better next season under a full year of Boudreaux? Maybe. That's a big roll of the dice for me, though, considering how things have fallen in their favor over the course of this run. Um, So, you know, I'd be really reticent to see this team... I'd be really reticent to see this team stay the course, to be totally honest with you. Like, I I feel like this is a team that's all in on a team that's, you know, very unlikely to see the, see the first round, but, but extraordinarily unlikely to see the second. And I I don't, I don't see how you get better without a dramatic change of direction. I think there's a recognition of that within, within the halls of power at off of Griffith's way, but you know, it's going to be very fascinating to see what they do. And, and this is going to be the first time that we get to see. We've heard them talk. We've heard them talk. We haven't, we haven't heard them say a ton, right? We've heard nope. them be guarded. But we've heard them talk. We haven't yet seen the actions, right? Beyond staffing up a intriguing, vibrant, diverse front office, we haven't seen this front office move yet. And, until, and once, we, once we do, we'll know more. Like, we'll be able to imply things. We'll be able to extrapolate from, from the actions that we see. And until then, we're just sort of waiting to see what direction this club is going to go in. And do they have the stones to, you know, change direction considering the pressure that Boudreaux has successfully put on management to add and amp up the difficulty of those decisions? On the point about the front office talking but not necessarily saying much, uh, your athletic colleague Pierre Lebrun has hey, an interview come on. with no, 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 come no, on. no, no. I'm not saying it was a bad job by Pierre Lebrun. I'm Shot. saying there's interesting <laughs> tidbits in there. But it's by the way, Pierre Lebrun had an interview with Patrick Alvin of It's Up at the Athletic today. You should check it out. But my point is, continues to play it close to the vest, right? Continues to play it close to the vest, emphasizing the need to uh, add depth to the AHL system, to add more pieces, but also saying, you know what, it's been pretty quiet. Quiet. We don't necessarily feel a sense of urgency to make these moves. So it is it's still very hard to feel like you're getting the perfect understanding of what this franchise wants to do going into the trade deadline. No, I would never, never take a shot at your <laughs> athletic colleague. One of the best in the biz, Pierre but, LeBron. But smirching, my How, boy. No, no, no. I would never. <laughs> Uh, love everyone at the Athletic. The, the Pierre Lebrun's article is really interesting, and go check it out for the commentary from executives around the yep. league on some of the dif- difficulty facing the Canucks. I, I disagree with a lot of the takes in there, but you know, I d- I'll disagree with a lot of the takes in anywhere. That's sort of what I do, <laughs> particularly when it comes to sort of older school hockey thinking, right? It, it permeating, permeating, um, you know, opinions about what the Canucks should do. Like it's. But but some really interesting chatter, rumor mill stuff, um, you know, a good reflection of how the industry views some of these players and views some of their intentions based on what they're hearing. You don't often get that insight, and that's where that article, I, I mean, in addition to 100%. Alvin's fascinating commentary about JT Miller himself, um, I think the most interesting part of the article is, is Pierre Lebrun basically takes you behind the curtain and gives you a good sense of what hockey people are talking about and thinking about regarding this club. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Text message inbox. I asked you, uh, does JT Miller's hot streak here and his game last night in particular, has it made you reconsider your stance on potentially trading him? And as expected, a very split opinion coming in 
uh, to 650-650. Tony says, no, don't trade Miller. A couple of unsigned texts. One says, not at all. You trade him at the draft for a stud defenseman and other pieces, and then players like Pedersen have to step up. Another one just says, nope, we still have to trade him. Uh, this one is unsigned, is it? but is interesting. says, I hope I am wrong, but I really hope that this administration doesn't make the same mistake that the last administration made, which was make decisions on false hope. The decisions that Benning made after the 2015 playoff run set this team back years, and I hope Rutherford and company don't make the same mistakes based on this coaching bump because this team is still several pieces away, which I think is a, an interesting comparison. Well, let's talk about the Montreal Canadiens really quickly because – First of all, they were terrible last night. Like yes. I thought that was a I thought that was a abysmal performance. We haven't we haven't talked about it from the total team perspective, but that was the kind of game there was never any doubt about who the significantly better team was. No, in that game. Not, never a moment they, of doubt. They couldn't break out. They no. had Ben Sherrod on the power play. Like the whole thing was messy, ugly. In fact, I think the Montreal Canadiens last night were about as lucky as any team I've seen play at Rogers Arena last night. And we all know what I think about the Canucks winning streak. So, you know, that says something, right? Um, I thought they were so lucky to even be in it, to not have had the doors blown off of them. Um, Montembeau, I thought, was fabulous until until the Pedersen and Miller shots. And I don't even fault him for those because those are Pedersen and Miller shots. Um, and great A's, even though there were rush chances unscreened. Um, so... The Montreal Canadiens, there's a, there's a couple, I think, things we can take from the Montreal Canadiens that are really fascinating to me. The first is, you know, I'm old enough to remember eight months ago when the uh, Ducharme bump carried the Montreal Canadiens to the Stanley Cup final, mm-hmm. right? And I'm also old enough to remember how this season played out for them, right? Um, how, you know, look, you'll always take a berth in the Stanley Cup final. But considering that in the fall of 2020, the Montreal Canadiens were like the only team ever, the only team in the league with max buying power on on a marketplace that had, you know, no one else spending money, right? No one else spending money, uh, but also the most slanted buyer's market we've ever seen in NHL history, right? Teams that used the 2020 offseason well, and I'm, I'm specifically thinking about the Florida Panthers, who are another significant team with... Uh, you, you're going to do the ding, thank you. Uh, with, um, but they had significant buying power too, but the, but not like the Canadians did. Like the Canadians brought in, you know, Jake Allen and resigned him, uh, Josh Anderson and resigned him to a massive ticket, Joel Edmondson. Um, but they used all their cap space on all these supporting pieces, and they didn't do anything with value that would last, with the exception of Tyler Toffoli. That was the one really smart deal that they were able to do. They should have set themselves up for years, like five, six years. And look, they made the cup final, so I guess you have to look at it with with that in mind. You have to weight that heavily. But, you know, literally 11 months later, they're rebuilding. Completely tear down, rebuild. They're the only team that's sold ahead of the deadline so far, right? Just a good note to remember that the long view, right? You, If you're insistent and disciplined about taking the long view, right? And, and I clearly am when it comes to this Canucks team, at least as best as I see it. I'm not always right, but I'm always going to take wow. a long view. We got it. We got it on record there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, you know, when you do that, there's going to be moments where you probably look silly in the short term because it's hockey. It's variable. Things happen. Teams start playing well. There's human factors at play. But 
this run under Boudreaux, I don't think, should be mistaken as setting this team up for like a new elevated long-term baseline that gets them to contention without a significant overhaul of the roster, right? The Montreal Canadiens are a perfect example of that, like a perfect snapshot at the risk of buying too much or reading too much into a run of success, even if that run of success occurs in the playoffs when it really matters. The second thing that I want to bring up is I've now covered two Montreal Canadiens Vancouver Canucks games. And the first one was the back-to-back game after the Canucks had lost in Boston. And the Montreal Canadiens had just, it was Jeff Gorton's first game as the, I don't remember what his title is. Someone looked this up for me. He's the vice president, I think, of hockey operations. It's it's not president, but it's, it's a ridiculous title. Yeah. <laughs> the fact is is that I hope he gets paid by the word in his title and beyond that I'm never going to learn it. Jeff Gordon first game of the Jeff Gordon era of Montreal Canadiens hockey and since then I think we know exactly what the Canadians are going to do over the next few years, right? We know that they're going to sell. We know that they're going to accumulate assets. We know that they're going to take a certain direction toward building a team capable of winning a cup, not just going on a miracle cup run. Uh, that falls short. The Canucks were still waiting, right? Like <laughs> two games after that game, the Montreal Canadiens who'd, who'd acted quickly to install Jeff Gordon, two games after that, Boudreaux was in town. Four games after that, Jim Rutherford was in town. So it was this like moment of change for the two organizations. And yet while the Canucks in some ways were late to change, they changed more decisively because they also changed the coach at the same time. And now, I, I, you know, we're all sort of here while this team claws its way into the race. And they're still on the fringes of the race, but they're clawing their way in and, and cr- full credit to them. We're still sort of hung up on what this team's going to do because we don't know, right? This team still hasn't telegraphed their intentions. And where, I'm, where I get a little nervous about it, right, is I do think that if you get stuck... If you get stuck chasing the shiny object, you can be led astray quickly. You can you can run around in a circle. And the circle that the Canucks have been running around for a long time, you know, it's not some glorious oval like the one at the um at the Richmond <laughs> like, Oval. Well, I was thinking I was thinking about um about Oregon. I was thinking the it's the Michael Johnson oval ah, yes. at uh in Eugene. It's not some beautiful spot like that, right? It's uh it's literally like just walking around in a circle in place, <laughs> stuck never having good enough draft picks to to get to where you need to go, never enough prospects, never enough good young players. And one thing that strikes me too is this team is back in the race and the crowd last night, and maybe it's cuz it was so habs heavy, but the atmosphere here wasn't great. You know, like I still don't get the sense that this market is bought in to this team. Like, I think the first impression made in the first two months of the year still still lasts, like it still matters. But also, I just think this franchise hasn't given fans the unqualified ability to buy hope, right? They haven't been able to create this group of young players where you feel like you're buying in on the ground floor and you're going to set off on this long 10-year, 15-year journey of good hockey, the way that Canucks fans got to enjoy from... 2000 through 2015 right like that's that's ultimately what this market wants that's what's going to excite fans in this city and i just i get the sense especially after last night and i've been debating this with people on and on because we we're so engaged with hardcore fans that our sense of it is like people are excited about this team 
and I'm excited to watch them. When I watch them overpower the Montreal Canadiens with the forecheck in the first, I'm yep. like, this is fun. Now, they didn't sustain it over the second and the third period, but that was fun. Like, you know, I, go, go play with reckless abandon. You know, turn those. There were some great moments in the game. Turn those night. sliders no on NHL 2020 up to uh, <laughs> up to full attack. You know, set, set your your two on two to aggressive. Like, let's go. It's fun. Um, and yet, you know, I I just don't get the sense that this market's all in yet, even on this run. And and I do think that like I do think that this market would almost be more engaged. To have a longer view, like build to buy into. Like I think, I think at the end of the day, this market sees this team and they're like, oh yeah, they're doing better. But there's not the hope that they can deliver something. What this market really wants is the hope that they're buying into something that might pay off and might pay off with a cup. And everything else, I think, is kind of noise to your casual fan. The sense I get more than anything is that people are waiting to see the first movements from this front office, right? To see the signs of, okay, what is the new direction going to be? And then there'll be a decision. How locked in am I on that? How much do I buy into that? How much does that mm. do, does that direction excite me? But you're right. We are in still in this kind of waiting period where we're waiting for the other shoe to drop and see, okay, we're expecting bold moves because of Jim Rutherford's track record, because of some of the things he's said. What will those actually look like? And I think once we get a better sense of that, well, once we see what those moves are, obviously, we'll get a better sense of our fans willing to buy into that vision because we are kind of in this this twilight zone waiting period right now. Okay, we went super late here. Lots to get into, obviously, with the JT Miller discussion. Uh, 650, 650, keep your thoughts coming in. Lots to talk about from last night other than JT Miller as well, including a couple of his line mates that I want to get into. Uh, good text coming in on those points as well. Uh, don't forget, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and review as well. More Canucks ever on the way on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Uh, You're going to do the ding? Thank you. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drantz here. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Lots of fantastic techs coming in. People are fired up today, Drancer. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Uh, Bernie and Chilliwack text in, I can't believe what I'm listening to. You guys are already throwing the new management team under the bus because they are taking their time to make moves. No, we're not. No one's throwing them Absolutely under the bus not. because they haven't made moves. In fact, I've said there's no, there's not a lot of urgency for them to make moves outside of Tyler Mott and potentially <laughs> Yarrow Halak. If they want to wait until the summer, that's just fine by me. All we're doing is exploring the ramifications of waiting. Is it Does it make more sense to wait? Quite possibly, yes. No one's throwing them under the bus for not making moves already. I'm, I'm really optimistic about the new management group, generally speaking. I mean, I agree. I've liked a lot of what I've heard. I, I think from what I can gather about internal conversations, internal process, I think they're going to be in a very good spot. So I'm certainly not throwing them under the bus, but I am wondering uh, what direction they're going to chart because I think it's a really high-pressure situation. It's a really high-pressure situation, particularly considering this organization's track record, right, of chasing the bauble. You know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to see something new from this franchise. I'm hoping to see this franchise take the longer view. I, I think they've got the right people to do that. But, but, 
there's always until I see it, until you see a leopard change its spots, it's a tiger. <laughs> like, come on, that's all it is. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to check that one. <laughs> the logic on that went a little bit later. <laughs> But I just get, I get what you're trying to say, Trancer, yeah. Uh, okay, keep, keep your thoughts coming in, but I did want to move on from JT Miller. Well, it's kind of connected, because as JT Miller has gone on this tear and the chatter around a potential Miller trade has quieted down, the chatter around potentially trading Brock Besser has really increased. And this text came in early in the show, but I wanted to read unsigned. Please do sign your text. I'd love to give you credit for a good text. He says... Uh, the texter says, I keep saying it would be a big mistake trading Besser. He played so well yesterday, forechecking, battles along the boards, net front presence, scoring chances. I could go on and on. And I did want to give some shine to Brock Besser for his performance last night, Trance, because I completely agree with what the texter's saying. That was, you know, beyond the goal that he scored and some of the flashy scoring chances that he generated as well, which are obviously really important. That, to me, felt like one of the best examples of the kind of fully actualized version of Brock Besser and what he can be as a play-driving, needle-moving winger in this league. You saw it on display, I thought, last night, where he was one of the best players on the ice all night. And... I understand why his name has started to come up more in trade speculation. And I know, you know, on the Jeff Merrick show today, uh, Merrick and Elliot Friedman were talking about would the LA Kings be interested in Brock Besser at this year's trade deadline? I understand that, but I do think we've gone from all of this hype surrounding Brock Besser and his rookie year and the Calder campaign to now I almost get the sense that he is underrated in this market because he is still an extremely effective player. And I thought he showed that in a big way last night. Yeah. Brock Besser dictates play when he's on, right? Like he just, he thinks a little bit ahead of the competition. I thought we saw that in evidence last night and, and this four checking game suits him a little bit in that, you know, he's not necessarily the guy you want as a missile, <laughs> you know, as the F one, but he reads the play so well that he gets to spots really quickly and and I think it's you know the the amount of pressure that they're putting other teams under, combined with Besser's ability to anticipate, I despite not being the fastest guy, I actually think it helps him play fast. I mean I thought he was the straw that stirred the drink for that Miller line last night, like without question at five on five. I know Miller has the moments and the points, but you know for me that that shift where they overwhelm them and get the Hamannick response goal. That was like four or five great plays by Besser. Two turnovers created by Besser. Um, you know, not taking away from Miller's production, but a secondary assist uh, there and a secondary assist on on the power play, you know, shouldn't outweigh what what Besser did last night. He was he was certainly through the first half of the game their best skater, and then I do think Miller took things over in the third. But you know, uh, just a great performance, a great performance from a really good player and a really good player who, if you look at his career scores at a rate of about 65 points per 82 games, right? 65 points per 82 games is really good for a 24-year-old forward in this league. He's got two more prime seasons, two more seasons left in his statistical prime. Um, you know, I, I think the notion, like if you go to our Canucks right now, you'll see a really good meme, and it's the Homer meme where he retreats into yeah. the hedge and then returns. And it's, uh, it's me two weeks ago, uh, Trade Miller. Miller puts up... 21 points in 10 games, like reemerges from the bush trade Besser. Um, you know, you really do have to be cognizant of age here. And I, I think there's a lot of factors at play, obviously, with the qualifying offer, with JT Miller's status. 
Age is a crucial one, though, for me, because JT Miller at 24 versus Brock Besser at 24 is not a competition, right? It's not close. Um, what what does Besser do over the next few seasons? What does Besser do if you run the power play through him on the flank? You know, I think there's a a really tough hypothetical there that you have to work your way through in its entirety in making a decision about in the event that the Canucks decide that they want to move, you know, a big ticket forward or two. I think working through it is really going to be challenging on the Besser-Miller front, particularly because I do think there is the other factor here, which is style, style, style right? The stylistic factor. Um, the fact that Miller sort of fits the, the Rutherfordian mold better than Besser, I'm sure, is weighed heavily by the man who dictates that style, right? The fact that JT Miller can play center and Brock Besser cannot. You know, the fact that the organization increasingly views Miller as a center which I still view him as a winger. I'm stubborn about that. I know he's had this incredible run of production as a as a center, but his play driving is better on the wing. And so, you know, I still view him that way. I view him as a as a top-line forward as opposed to uh, as as a natural centerman, but you know, that's going to be weighed heavily. I just I that's the type of decision particularly because of the unique pressure points, because Miller's older, because he's more productive, because Besser has the QO I do worry about that being a easy, like a, a a decision that's ripe for a mistake, and and that's going to be very fascinating to watch it play out over the next six to twelve months. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing because without that complicating qualifying offer, you almost look at this as a situation where, hey, he's having a bit of a down season because of his slow start statistically, even though he's picked it up recently, that's almost an opportunity for the team to try to get a team friendly extension, right? When you sign a player, when they're not coming off their strongest season, those are the contracts that you have a better chance of winning from a team perspective and getting some surplus value on that deal. Now the qualifying offer does change things, but I still think there's a chance to sign Brock Besser to a long-term extension that ends up looking like a really good deal from a Vancouver Canucks perspective. And of course, when you start talking about uh, Brock Besser, you know, these, those kinds of texts immediately come in. Jay, F- Jay Fid says, uh, what do the stats suggest Besser's market value would be? He says is 7.5 too steep, or is that in the ballpark? And it's it's kind of an interesting question. I don't know if you think what kind of numbers you have in your head for an extension on a, a Brock Besser deal, but if you're looking at you know six six years, six point five, something like that, that's just kind of a ballpark figure that I would have in mind. I'd be pretty keen to sign that deal if I was the Vancouver Canucks looking at Brock Besser. Yeah, and I think the key is to structure it so that he gets paid seven five in salary next right. year, and then I think you can probably do all sorts of interesting things in terms of lowering that number. And yeah, I mean, a deal that pays him through his age 29 season, I much prefer that as a commitment as opposed to a deal that pays JT Miller through his age 25 or 35 season, right? I mean, that's a factor you have to weigh here too. Um, You know, we talked about the Tavares example after the Leafs and the Canucks played, right? Uh, You know, you don't want to add Tavares to a group that's not going to compete for the Cup next year, right? Like, that's the problem. You need, if you're a 105-point team, it's one thing to, to... sign a contract that has you know front-loaded value and is likely to age poorly because that's those are years that matter for you um for this Canucks team I do think you have to take the longer view and and adding a deal when you've already got the Ekman Larson commitment on the books you know that's going to be a problem for this team two three years down the road 
uh, as well as he's played this season. Like that, that is inevitable, right? That is coming. Um, you know, I, it's just I, it's really hard for me to recommend that as a recipe for winning. I just don't see how you build a team that's better two years from now if a 33-year-old forward is your highest-paid player, like your highest-paid for, forward. I just I don't know how you win a cup doing business that way. Dustin Maple Ridge texts in, people are quick to forget that Besser was third in the league last year in board battles. One, enough with the he's soft talk, the dude is a beast. Uh, Nelson yeah, and Colonna, a big, strong guy, man. It's I, a good, I don't know what people yeah. are talking about either. It, it's a good shout from uh, from Thank Dustin you. Maple Ridge because... Yeah, he he is very very good at those board battles, at those puck paddles, uh, those puck battles. Always and, always good takes out of the ridge. That's right. Nelson and Colonna says, "I like Besser, but slow down. They faced a poor team. Yeah, you got to give the caveats about how Montreal looked last night. They but played at the same terribly. Time, well, but, but I don't think that. I don't think that. Well, because I don't think the Canucks played well. Like, here's the thing: I don't think the Canucks played sharp. Right? Bruce Boudreau called it sloppy. I would just say I, they didn't look sharp to me. I didn't look, think after the first period they looked. I thought they looked sharp in the first period, not necessarily after that. See, they see, were I, just the better team. I don't even think they looked sharp in the first period. I just think they're like this is what I liked so much about last night's game, actually. And I, I want to I want to be careful about how I walk this tightrope because this is a really positive take for me. I like that the Canucks were not sharp and and were not sort of on their game in terms of, like, every pass was perfect. Every shot was perfect. They weren't making shots. They kind of, plays were getting broken. But the way that they worked, the way that they played structurally, they were able to fall back on and just overwhelm a team that's not very good. That's not the type of win that we've seen this Canucks team have much of over the past few years, certainly not this season. I love the games you win when you don't play well. They didn't. And, ha- they didn't have the better goaltending performance last night either. No, they didn't. Right? They, they were. You know what? That's what. And that's really more what I'm saying. The, I've talked a lot about the Canucks winning with the, the wind at their back. They walked into a hurricane last night in terms of the luck going against them. In terms of you know, right off the bat, there's a phantom trip on Tyler Mott. They didn't have the whistles in their favor. They didn't have uh, the goaltending matchup in their favor. But they found a way to lean on structure and outwork a team and just completely dominate play. I love those wins. Uh, like, that's a win that means a lot more to me than a win like the one against the Rangers, where, you know, you, you beat the team, but you're giving up a million chances, right? Uh, last night meant more to me uh, in terms of how it maybe adjusts how I view this team's quality than some of the games in which they've sort of put up crooked scorelines or, or that Flames game. Right, that Flames game where they're giving up boatloads of chances early, but then they just completely blow it open. Like last night's game means more to me in terms of what I think of this team, even though the competition obviously could not be more inferior when you compare the Canadians to the Flames. The other thing I'll say about, you know, looking at Brock Besser's performance specifically as an individual and saying, Okay, well it was just against the Habs is look, good players show out and <laughs> and and they they dominate bad teams like that's part of what makes them really good players and yeah you've got to be able to bring uh, great performances against good teams as well but you know you can only play who's in front of you that night right so I don't think you can knock it that much uh, Besser's performance just because it was against Montreal that's part of being a great player is yeah you beat up on the teams at the bottom of the standings when you get that opportunity. Brendan and Nanaimo says, uh, if the Canucks need to make a decision on Besser or Miller, maybe the question should be, who is the better player for the next five to six years? And I think that's a good way to look at it, Brendan, right? And you just kind of think, who is likely to, you know, look, I don't want to put anyone in a, or, 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 
sound like I'm doubting or trying to be pessimistic about any individual player. But there's a very, very good chance we're seeing the best season of JT Miller's career right now, right? I think there's a very good chance that we have yet to see the best season of Brock Besser's career. Now, that's that, that's not the kind of test that makes the decision for you, but I think it's a big part of it, right? Who is more likely to improve and do better in the next five or six years? It's Brock Besser. It's not JT Miller. There's a very good chance that this is JT Miller's career year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm, I'm a guy who thinks Bro- JT Miller's probably a top-line caliber player for another three or four years after this one. So uh, you know, I'm not I'm not saying he's going to fall off. No, 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 no. Soon, no. You know, I think there's tremendous value if you were building, if you were finishing a cup contending team. I, you know, re-signing JT Miller for me, no brainer. Roll up the Brinks truck. It's just that I don't think this team's close, right? Like that's what it comes down to for me. I think this team needs to take a longer view toward building, you know, a, a team that can win. And so when I look at JT Miller, I see a great player. I see a really good guy. I see, you know, a, a guy who carries himself in a way that I find immensely charming. <laughs> and like, just I just find it immensely charming. There's a certain, you know, hawkiness to him, for lack of a better word, that you know is fun to and watch. It, it's fun to interact with. He's struck a chord with this fan base for a reason, for a very clear, obvious, understandable reason. He has, but did, did you see Jeff Patterson point out there's no Miller jerseys in the crowd? He's not wrong. He's not wrong, man. Yeah, I wouldn't, you know? re- I wouldn't read too much into that. I don't know. Why? I, I mean, first of all, it's anecdotal. No, but right. it's, it's pronounced. It is pronounced. I just don't see a lot of nine around town compared to 40, 43, 53. Yeah, but you also get, I think you look at the reaction that we get here, that we see on Twitter. People are fired up about JT Miller and what he's doing this year. Well, they right? should be. I mean, he's fun to watch. He's fun to watch. He's a great player. But, you know, I, I just, it's an interesting dynamic overall for me. And I sort of... I, I do think you need to be, and I heard Dan Murphy on the morning show today talking about you have to you have to have the self confidence to go get the next guy, you know. And and J T Miller, the concern that I have is that J T Miller is a classic, and this is only only applies to a team that I don't think is a contender this year, and that, that I suspect is not going to be a contender next year, but that I'm hopeful might be a contender by 2024, 25. Um, you know, Miller to me seems like a pretty classic example of a guy you need on the right contract, right? Like this is the contract that's perfect for a team like Vancouver, and his next contract, I worry, is not going to be. Uh, uh, the next contract might end up holding back this team's ability to improve, considering where they are. Which is not to say that you know, in the event that they sustain this run, um, in the event that they keep him into next season and start the season off you know, looking like an elite team, that also changes the logic. I just would not bet on that if I were in Jim Rutherford's shoes, and I'm very curious to see what bet, you know, a far smarter hockey guy who's had far more success in this industry than mine ultimately decides to place. That is going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow on another Canucks game day as they welcome Alexander Ovechkin and the Washington Capitals to Rogers Arena. Back on at noon tomorrow. The People Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda is coming up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. And I'm not always right.